Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Support, don't punish. It's a brilliantly simple message, isn't it? But it's a global day of action. So what's it all about? Stop and Search episode 13 on Distraction Pieces Network, Portugal ACAST in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where We've got a really quick turnaround on this podcast because we only recorded it at Waterstones Tottenham Court Road last week and we're putting it out, we've, uh, we've rushed to get the production going on it so that we can get it out and make sure that you know what's going on on the 26th of June which is the Support Don't Punish Day of Action um, Anne Fordham from the IDPC, uh, she's heavily involved with it she's one of the, uh, essentially one of the founders of the cause and she explains brilliantly what the Support Don't Punish Day is all about at the start of this episode but joining her, we also have Jennifer Randall, who is a senior lecturer at the University of East London. And Jennifer, oh my goodness, there's not a single person that didn't come away so inspired by, by what she had to say on this very episode. So I can't thank Jennifer enough and Anne for taking part in this, for giving us a real reinvigoration, just a real sense of purpose in what we're doing. It, I, this, I think, and I like to say, is a genuinely inspiring episode. We got some voices from the audience as well that um, that we really wanted to make sure that were part of this p- specific podcast. So I can't thank enough in order. And if you go to acast.com slash stop and search, you'll see their pictures because um, we wanted to make sure that this is an interactive one. And thank you so much to Simone Gordon, uh, Shivani Joshi, uh, Andrea, our friend Andrea, who's been on a few podcasts, uh, Daniel Anthony, uh, thank you for a fantastic contribution. Along with Claudia Brett, thank you so much. Gillian Maxwell, and um, towards the end, we had a, a fantastic contribution from a from a, a young lad called Mikey, who um, really gave us a, well, you'll hear it, it's a perfect outro, I think. Um, you're certainly welcome to come along uh, more often, Mikey, if you're going to bring along those kind of talents. Um, so thank you so much for everybody that took part. Let's get straight on with this episode, because um, it's a, such an important cause, Support No Punish. 26th June, there's lots of stuff that we can do to all take part. So here we go. This is Support No Punish on Distraction Peace Network. I've said all this already, so let's just get straight on with the episode. Here we go. Right, so this is the, um, well, Support Don't Punish. Um, I'm going to get everybody again to introduce themselves a la Infinite Monkey Cage. So, Jennifer, if you can introduce yourself. 
Um, hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer Randall, and I'm a lecturer at the University of East London. And Anne, if you can introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Anne Fordham. I'm the executive director of the International Drug Policy Consortium. That's a bit of a mouthful, so IDPC for short. IDPC is a global network of over 170 organizations from over 60 countries around the world, and we all come together to advocate for the reform of drug policies to make sure that they're sort of, yeah, um, embedded in the principles of human rights and you know peace and security and we are also the um the organization the network behind the support don't punish campaign that we'll be talking about i think the first question has to be what is support don't punish support don't punish well it's many things um but it is now uh, it well it started in 2013 it started as a the idea of, of generating a, a global message around the need for um, drug policy reform. But actually, sorry, to go back a step further, because how, how it originally started, IDPC was involved in a five-country project that's, that was about scaling up harm reduction services for people who inject drugs. And those countries were all in the global south. So it was Kenya in Africa, Indonesia, Malaysia, China, and India. So you can imagine the situation in those countries where you're trying to scale up um, health services of any kind, in fact, but particularly for a criminalized and marginalized population group like people who are injecting drugs. And the partners that we were working with in those countries who were the implementing partners were struggling with basically the, the program in terms of, you know, looking at how they would be able to start implementing harm reduction services in a very punitive policy environment in all of those countries where drug users are heavily criminalized. And also they could see that even though it was a five country project that by the end of the project, you know, ideally with, with an intervention like, like a health, public health intervention, you know, you have a lot of, say, foreign money coming in. It was a Dutch-funded project, but that eventually the government, the national government would take over and start funding those services, harm reduction services for people who inject drugs. And the implementing partners could see that two of the greatest barriers that they faced to having this project be successful and sustainable was, A, the policy environment, so the criminalization of people who inject drugs, and also the lack of support from the government side in terms of funding support, as well as just a general ideological resistance to the idea that people who use drugs deserve any kind of help or support or attention and care. So they came to the global partners on the project, of which um, IDPC was one. The others were Harm Reduction International and also the International Network of People Who Use Drugs, INPUD, and asked us how we could help raise these two issues, the, these two key points around the policy environment and also the funding environment for harm reduction services to the global level. And so the idea of... of you know, a campaign was born. Initially, the campaign was going to sort of take place in, in a limited number of countries. Funding was tight. Um, we had fairly modest ambitions. But 2013, we decided to launch the campaign. After much discussion, the slogan of support, don't punish, was sort of born out of a creative um, multi-stakeholder process that took many months. 
But the idea, and any of you who have ever had to try to come up with a slogan, you can imagine trying to do this, uh, you know, globally across five countries with, you know, about 25 partners involved. But um, the idea with Support Don't Punish actually was to come up with a, quite, quite a positive slogan initially. So, you know, using, you know, something that was, and, and also an active slogan. So it was like support, don't punish. And who could argue with that, really? Like, in terms of in some of the most punitive environments. And, you know, we weren't going as far as maybe to talk about, you know, distinct policy options, um, although we do obviously advocate very strongly for the removal of criminal sanctions decriminalization but it wasn't it was trying to be not too confrontational so we could um yeah get the message to a broad audience and also in the countries where the the you know the the roots of the campaign were we knew that to get support it needed to be a yeah a broad and accessible message so that's how the campaign was born and 2013 was the first uh, we launched it on the 26th of june which is also the global day, now the global day of action for the campaign. The reason we chose the 26th of June is because it's also the United Nations Day against illicit drug trafficking and drug abuse. And on this day, on the 26th of June, governments around the world have tended to commemorate the day by showing how tough they are on drugs. So, for example... China has used the 26th of June to hold public executions of drug traffickers. And, and that's how they've marked the day. So we chose that day to kind of, you know, message jam and say, well, we're going to take back the message of that day. And this day should be about calling for reform of drug policies and holding up how punitive and destructive drug policies are shameful and, you know, try to kind of reverse the message of the day. It's also quite a useful media hook, in fact, which we didn't know would, if that would work or not, but it, but it has worked. Um, so that's the... the 2013, we tried to mobilize um, around the world, our network particularly, to enact actions um, on the day, local actions, you know, and it was incredible actually what people came up with, you know, the, the creativity that was spawned by um, the campaign. So people had street art, dancers, football matches, um, you know, one, one year, so it's, we're now in our fifth year, but one year, I think it was 2013 or 2014, an Egyptian group um, got these sails printed with the logo and sailed a ship down the Nile with the Support Don't Punish logos printed on it. It was just incredible. And this, so, so to answer your question, when you ask me what, the support don't pun what Support Don't Punish is, I think originally it was, and it still is a campaign, but it's grown into this global community of people. And you know, who come together and under a huge umbrella now of many different messages. And to give you that example as well as to say, in the beginning, it, you know, it had, it had its roots in HIV AIDS, as I explained. It was really around getting, scaling up HIV AIDS, harm reduction services for people who inject drugs. And, you know, over the years, you know, cannabis groups have, have joined the campaign, which is, you know, very distinct from, from, from the community of people who inject drugs. Um, farmers groups have joined the campaign. So subsistence farmers who, you know, are also punitive... Uh, 
punished and, and criminalized um, for growing crops that are destined for the illicit drug market and in many cases for subsistence purposes. They also you know, felt this message speaks for them too. So the tent is, is getting broader and, and it is this yeah, incredible kind of flourishing global community that um, yeah, we, we certainly find very exciting. Round of applause. I think that's what you managed to do, is to get it truly international. A lot of times in drug policy reform, we are batting to our own kind and to, to you know, make an echo chamber at the end of the day. But you have managed to get outside that, haven't you? You've managed to, as you said, message jam, use something for a positive movement. And I think that it's really worked. You've, it's become a, a movement of culture, I don't know if you'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And... You know, again, you know, interestingly, when, when the campaign first started, the uptake was really strong in the countries with the most punitive or most obviously punitive environments. Let me put it like that. You know, Indonesia, Thailand, um, you know, to some extent, India and, and countries in Africa, um, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Kenya, East Africa in particular. And then... In, you know, countries in the global north, like in the UK and in North America, tended to, didn't, they didn't seem to feel that the support don't punish message spoke to them. So for the first couple of years of the campaign, there was very little actions on the global day of action in, in you know, Western Europe and, and North America. Actually, that's not fair. France were really actively engaged from the get-go. But generally, it was like a bit more of a lukewarm response to the campaign. And I think that, you know, you were talking earlier about how social change happens, but you know it's the same with with this this kind of social movement. It was very grassroots, and it was very much led by the grassroots communities in some of the countries of the global south that sort of raised the profile of the campaign to the point where some of the groups in you know in Western Europe and in North America started to want to engage with the campaign because they could see that it was growing and they wanted to be part of this global show of force. You know, I, I, yeah, I look at the campaign and I feel like it's become kind of a, a solidarity movement. And, um, you know, and on a difficult day at work, you know, and then you're struggling and, you know, you're, you feel like you're hitting against your, your head against a brick wall, as Steve was saying, you know, drug policy, there's a lot of boring stuff. And there's a lot of technical documents and particularly a lot of, you know, technical UN documents. But, you know, on a difficult day, I might just go to the Support Don't Punish website and, like, flip through the, the pictures of everyone holding up their, um, you know, the Support Don't Punish logo or look at the pictures from the Day of Actions and think, yeah, you know, this is worth it. Like, this is, you know, we, there are people out there who really care about this and that, that this, you know, that something needs to change. I, I completely agree with that, is that you do need those motivational spurs on and it's, it is difficult because you do get caught up in the, in the bureaucratical nature of, of the essence of the debate. And Jennifer, I think that you've really attached yourself to this, haven't you? You've, you've really taken this support, no punish banner and run with it, haven't you? Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so I just wanted to start with a few comments uh, about how I've come to be a drug policy enthusiast. I'm not an expert <laughs> by any... By any stretch, um, but I'm a mom and I'm an anthropologist and I try to be a good teacher. I teach at a university in Stratford. And I met Anne at a party, actually, uh, many years ago. A three-year-old's birthday party. A three-year-old's birthday party. And we were, 
we were using some drugs, um, just alcohol, but right. So everybody was thinking something else. Um, and we just started talking about where we come from, and um, and introduced me to a book written by Professor Carl Hart. Uh, his book is a memoir about his own life. And I had just started working at uh, the University of East London, which is predominantly black students. And um, I wanted to try to find a way to engage my students who mostly work in healthcare to think critically about a health issue. And I think that drug policy is really helpful in helping people think about really powerful structural Issues, And that's one thing I would really like to talk about today, which is we talk a lot about the drugs and we talk a lot about addiction, but we don't talk about the structures that produce that pain that people are trying to escape from. And it's something that I've really, really, really wanted to stress with my students. So we talk about neoliberalism and we talk about austerity and we need to use that vocabulary and we must remember that drug policy historically has been used as a form of social control for marginalized groups of people. And today, um, teaching in a classroom of people coming from 60 plus different countries, and I must acknowledge that half of the people sitting here are actually from my class. So I'm hoping that some of them can actually attest to, because I, I just want to give two, I've completely gone off my notes, I'm sorry. But oh, you, I wanted, you don't, you don't. Um, I, this year, I've, I've, been taking, I've been teaching a class for three years, and we read Carl's book, and we reflect on what he has talked about. And the transformations that have come out of that module have been beyond anything I've ever thought. Um, as an educator who wanted to work with people to help them see the power that they have to rehumanize fundamentally dehumanizing systems. Um, I tried to teach from a Freyerian perspective, which is, if anybody knows Paulo Freire, and he's a Brazilian educator who talks about that relationship between teacher and student, which is why I think in this moment right now we need to have honest conversations about what is happening. There are dangerous ideas as an American growing up in the Nancy Reagan era of just say no. We are moving back in that direction. There is incredible violence around us. The idea that northern countries didn't understand and identify with support, don't punish, acknowledges the privilege of class and whiteness that actually runs through that. Um, I... I'm losing my train of thought. I, um, so I wanted, I wanted to, to relay two things. So this year in the module, I gave a drug stigma survey at the beginning of the year, and some of you may not even recognize that that happened. But I wanted to see, quantitatively, is anything actually shifting? Um, so speaking to what Ollie said earlier about can, how can we have conversations with people to change their hearts and minds? Because I do think that that's where this comes from. So we gave a drug stigma survey, and 80% of the people agreed strongly or agreed that drug policy, drug laws should be stronger. And that was given in 80% of my class out of 120 people coming from 60 different countries. Um, by the time we finished in December, it had dropped to 23%. And that's one measure on that scale. We can 
shift how people think about some very vulnerable, vulnerable and stigmatized people in our society. And I grew up with very, well, I learned quite honestly through what was fed to me about drug education. And I feel really angry about that now. And I feel that I don't need to just choose alcohol as my psychoactive substance. We should be having an honest conversation about drug use, the pleasures of drug use. 80% of the people who use drugs don't have a problem with it. Um, but a lot of people who do have a problem with it have a lot of problems outside of their drug use. And that's what we must talk about. Um, so that was 80 to 23%. And then I had a student um, who was in my class three years ago. So um, I've had three cohorts go through my module. And there's a couple of them that are graduating now and some from two years ago. Um, and one of them was called in for jury duty. And she is a black Nigerian woman and was the only black woman on a jury. And the case was about a young man arrested for a drug charge. And everybody wanted to find him guilty. And she wouldn't have it. And she forced and talked and convinced the rest of that jury that this was not the right move. And that man did not get that charge. And that was as a consequence of her shifting the way she thought. Now. As an educator, I think education spaces, universities, schools need to be spaces that allow people to become vulnerable, to think differently. That's what learning is about. And I fear that just as um, Judith was talking about the healthcare system, our education system does not foster that kind of learning. That's, it, it looks at our students as if they are consumers. I need to have slow, critical, reflective discussions with my students. It's difficult to change people's ideas, especially about heavily ingrained, stigmatizing, dehumanizing ideas like what we have around drug use and drug users. And so I, I guess why I'm here and why I want to be a part of this is because I think it helps us to open up much-needed conversations about shit that is happening right now and how violent that system is to certain groups of people. And I, as a white woman, need to stand up and speak about this, the privilege that I bring, and and help to be a voice for people to talk about this and help to create a space in which people can reflect and think about this because I know that we can do that with people. Um, and I've done it and I've seen it and I, I, I feel like I'm talking too much about me, but I'd like for the students to talk about any experiences that they might have had that are helpful in them thinking in a different way. Um, so I said I was a mom at the beginning and I just want to end because I always start all of my modules with a quote from a Dr. Seuss book, which is the Lorax, and it says, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And I think that that's true. And um, I, I think I'm an anthropologist from background, and so when you talk about coming to meet people where they're at, 
anthropology works to make the world more accepting and understanding for difference. And that's not my words, that's Ruth Benedict. But that is what anthropology can do for people. Uh, slow, critical reflection can help people see themselves and others in more empathetic and more compassionate ways. And it's only through that that I think that we can splinter this and spider this or whatever you want to say to get this movement out. So that's my thoughts. I think round of applause. And I don't want to talk now because I don't want to talk. I, I can't talk that. Yeah, we, I um, think we're done. Well, all of my students are here. Why don't they stand up? So this is a group of some of them in various years. Oh well. Ashley, while you're there, everybody um, stand up. Let's do another picture. Come on. Yay! <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, and I think we'll go to the audience now to get some voices. Yes, Simone. Simone, Simone, you're the first up. Well done, Simone. Good evening, everybody. Jennifer, you're amazing. Thank you. So, I too am a mother. I have a 10 year old. Let me stand over here so I don't have to keep turning around. Um, it's my first year at UEL. Jennifer's my uh, lecturer. And um, I'm going to be honest, I had, um, uh, I had like a view on people that took drugs, it was negative. Um, Jennifer has awoken my critical consciousness and I now understand that we have a bigger problem than drugs, it's the cage. Um, we, go, we went over um, things in our module like Bruce Alexander, Paolo Ferreira, who spoke about uh, critical pedagogy and things like that. And the, uh, the student and teacher experience. Um, and Jennifer has really, um, I mean, we can all, all of the students here can say that Jennifer has really um, opened our eyes to things, you know. We're aware of the problem. I don't judge people for their drug taking anymore. Um, I want to be a part of the reform. I want to be a part of the activism. I want to be a part of the change. We need to make change. We need to come together. We need more voices. You know, with, these, with voices, we can be heard. We are, you know, in charge of our, of our choices. We're, we're allowed to make our own choices, and we have a right to a choice, okay? They need to listen to us. We are the people that they will listen to. We need to speak. We need more voices. The louder we speak, the more that we'll be heard. Masses. We are a mass already, okay? And we've got people like Jennifer educating us and preparing us with the tools that we need to fight against this policy. Dehumanizing people, incarcerating many of my brothers and sisters. It's, it needs to stop. We need to come together. And we're all amazing. Look at all these bright faces. We can do this. We can do this. Another two years. And I'll be speaking just like Jen. I'll be able to articulate myself yeah. properly. But thank you for having me. Thank you You're so amazing, much. Jennifer. 
I think that must be music to your ears, Anne, uh, to have someone that inspired that's willing to put themselves out there and had their opinion changed through Jennifer and Support Don't Punish's work. That must be exactly what you want to hear. Yes, it's, um, it's overwhelming but it, and it's incredible. But I've, I, have been, I have gone to UEL several times and um, done some public lectures for, for Jen and her students and I have been just even in those moments, overwhelmed by the response of, of her students to the message and to, yeah, absorbing, you know, the, the information and, and the transformative change that they've experienced, you know, because many of them have talked about that as well. And I was also there when, when Carl Hart, um, amazingly, and I mean, Jen didn't tell you this, but what Jen did was that the first year she taught Carl's book, she um, then the students all sort of wrote a huge Christmas card to Carl that they all signed and wrote their me- own messages on, and Jen sent it to Carl and 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 Carl responded and wrote back and said it was one of it was at that time anyway the most amazing thing that had happened to him as a result of writing his book, and um, and and they became friends and Carl uh, Jen invited Carl to UEL to do, yeah, like it's almost like three or four days of different events and get involved with the students. And Carl came and, and I was there when he did the, the first public lecture and he was completely overwhelmed. And also for him, he struggled because he said that most of the time when he was speaking, he was very adversor, adversor, adversarial, sorry, because he was speaking normally to white folks, you know, and, 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 and angry, but you know, at UEL and in this lecture theater, it was all these students who were mainly like black and, and, you know, and all like really angry and on board with, you know, drug policy reform and really understood his book and the structural issues that, you know, he managed to tease out in the way that he wrote his own story. And he found that really overwhelming, you know, and, and that transformative change. And I think, yeah, Jen has been amazing in, in, you know, taking a very brief conversation that we had at a three-year-old <laughs> birthday party and um, just li- lighting this fire, you know, in, in her students. And, and, you know, it's amazing to hear from you. One of, one of Jen's students actually works um, now at Release, where um, IDPC shares an office, Release is a UK drugs charity based here in London. So, you know, you kind of see this, this, this growing movement. And, and I hope that, you know, in other parts of the world, in the stories that we don't hear, there are people like Jen who have taken this message and it's, you know, woken them up and then allowed them to, to um, influence other people and, and you know, to uh, get them to change the way they think about, about drugs and I think that's, that's really what we're in it for, isn't it? That's ultimately how change is, is going to happen, how we're going to drive this, this policy change is really to get people thinking differently. And, you know, one of the um, countries that I'm closest to for, is Thailand. I'm, I'm actually half Thai and been working in Thailand for a very long time. IDPC, we're very small, we're only six full-time staff. Um, but two of our full-time staff members are actually based in Bangkok, um, partly because it's uh, sort of a hub in terms of this, the region in Asia, but um, also because, you know, that, that region of the world has some of the most entrenched 
um, punitive drug control policies. So, you know, many of you will know about what's happening, what's been happening in the Philippines for the last year with um, Duterte basically inciting extrajudicial killings against anyone suspected of being involved in the drug trade. And the Philippines is obviously very close to Thailand, but Thailand in 2003 had its own war on drugs. Not quite so many were summarily executed. It was more around two to 3,000. But it's interesting being involved in the policy debate in Thailand over the last couple of years. In fact, Steve and I were there last August, I think, at a, at a policy discussion. And just, you know, people, if, if, if people are presented with, I think, the facts and the evidence in a, yeah, I guess it's, it's challenging because we also had many people at that policy conference who really didn't agree with, with the messages that we're bringing across. But, you know, there were some people who've been coming to these policy discussions over time and, you know, sort of, and even policymakers who acknowledged that they had been brainwashing the public for decades and overstating the harms of drugs and deliberately stigmatizing and marginalizing people who use drugs to kind of reinforce the policy choices that they had made. And they had this discussion, I think it was at the policy forum Steve and I were at, you know, policymakers from like Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Health sat there and talked about how they would have to start um, sort of de-brainwashing the Thai public in order to be able to get support for a meaningful debate about rolling back from a very punitive approach to drugs. And you know, that was, that was really interesting because it is, it's all about the messaging and how to get the messaging out there and how to reach people. And support don't punish, we didn't, you know, our objectives initially were really just about um, harnessing this groundswell of support. And, and you know, raising people's voices to the national level or to the international level, showing support for change. And actually, through that process, it wasn't initially something that we had thought would, it seemed like too much to aim for at the time or to hope for. But through that process, you know, people, who, you know, who've come together, who have, you know, done um, actions on the Global Day of Action or even outside of that, have used these moments to reach policymakers, to invite them to come and speak at events, to sensitize them to, to the, you know, to the, to the, the pro-reform message. And that's been, you know, a really important part of, of the campaign, but also something that we didn't initially think, you know, we didn't initially sort of, yeah, put out there as something that we were necessarily going to aim for. And, and as you... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You said there's, there's a real harnessing of uh, the link between the drug consumers and policymakers and support don't punish really puts that back, doesn't it? It's, it's about the drug consumers. And I think one of the criticisms that you can throw at drug policy reform in general <coughs> is that we don't listen to drug consumers enough. They're, they're experts, and yet we still diminish their voice. And I think if it's all right to come to Andrea at this point, if, if Andrea wants to... Do you want to... If that's all right. You look quite sleepy down there. Yeah, sorry. Maybe it's Yeah, sure. There's, it's quite hot down there as well. I actually just wanted to ask the students of um, Jennifer, thank you so much for what you said. That was fantastic. It really was. Um, you know, what were the moments that changed your minds? Because, you know, it's like, for me, there was so much um, tragedy and trauma in my injection drug using days, and then the numbers of deaths just got so... I mean, you know, I think I'm sort of insane still from grieving and still grieving and still around people that are injecting drugs and trying to, you know, make their lives as easy as possible and and still sort of loving myself within that because, you know, obviously sometimes I still want to stick needles in my veins because life is hard. Um, I mean, not just needles, obviously loaded with (laughs) anything derived from the um, beautiful poppy, but... um, yeah, so to me, what's really, really important is that what is it that changes your mind? Is it, I mean, just somebody tell me, because like I'm all, I bend over backwards trying to change people's minds about this current government who I happen to think is extremely mean. And I've moved on a bit from drug policy because I just felt that I just overwhelmed myself with the pain of, you know, my own experience of using and people dying. You know, and there was nothing I could do about it because policies kept, being punishing wherever we looked, it just went on and on and on. So, um, yeah. So, please tell me what changed your mind. Um, so, I sort of I came to UEL in my first my first year, which was this year, and I actually started out not knowing anything about the course, and I'd wanted to be a physiotherapist since I was five years old, all the way up to nineteen years old, and I didn't get the grade, so I had to do this course, public health. Um, as an access course and within two weeks of being on the course and it was Jennifer's lectures within two weeks I totally changed the course of what I wanted to do for my career I didn't want to be a physiotherapist anymore I wanted to do something to do with politics and drug policy and specifically to do with drugs just because the things that I'd learned in Jennifer's class had, had made me so sort of so angry and it was so learning about everything and sort of the way that Jennifer spoke about it and especially the people who we learned about, like Johan Hari and people like that and Paolo Freire, and it just seemed so obvious sort of that we needed to change things. Um, and I think it was sort of another another lesson, another um, sort of subject I'd been interested in at sixth form was sociology and I was I'd got passionate about that because of because it had made me angry learning about 
the different ways different groups of people were treated and the different ideologies that sort of guided policy and decisions and how obvious to me it was that we were going about things the wrong way and I think that's what made me so sort of passionate and what made me want to sort of change things as well and that's what got me into it and I think it was it was just the passion that Jennifer brings to it and the way that she speaks that that sort of yeah the delivery of it that makes us so passionate <laughs> about wanting to change the, the question is like when was the moment when you decided people weren't there for punishment and abuse but actually had souls and love and life and so uh, well I, to be fair, I'm probably sort of the wrong person to ask because I'd always been quite liberal oh. with my views on drugs. <laughs> and it, yeah. it looks like we've got some answers over here, though. So I was in Jen's first class three years ago um, when we started to have this discussion, and I'd never heard anything about drug policy to this extent. I was new to all of the issues, and addiction in particular. And I think like the real moment where it clicked for me was learning about Bruce Alexander's Rat Park and thinking about addiction in the way that if you have a rat in a cage with nothing else but the drug, then of course it's going to go for the drug and it's going to be problematic. But you fill that cage with so much more. You fill it with food and other rats and things to do. And the drug is still there, but it doesn't go for it because it has so much more there. And it's just that, like I think someone mentioned before, it's not the drug, it's the cage. And that learning that just that small experiment it just it really clicked for me then and i think further on one of the quotes that's always stuck out to me is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety it's connection and thinking about that and thinking about if we're filling like people's lives with so much more and realizing that fundamentally we're all drug users in some way and there's no distinction between illegal drugs or having a cup of coffee we're the same we're all one and i think it's that realization that really changed my thinking and that's the way I approach it with people and I look at and I always make it a point to say well if you had a cup of coffee this morning you're also a drug user and I make that my starting point and then I try to talk about the issues from that point on. Which, can I just say, we went to Buffalo, New York last year, mm -hmm. and um, Ruby went and Shivani here went. Um, that's it, right? Yeah. There were 13 students, and we went and we held a Support Don't Punish Day of Action in Buffalo, New York. And Buffalo, because of my connection, just random. Um, but um, we had a chance to speak with um, some politicians. And this senator came in and he thought he was all that and a bag of chips because he was talking to these students from the UK, right? So all the students are sitting around and he starts giving his spiel about the heroin epidemic now in New York State. And now that it affects white people, we're going to be nice about drug policy. Um, and so he starts talking about all of this stuff and all the students are writing and taking notes and everything. He comes and then he ended up allowing us to ask some questions and Shivani said to him well you're a drug user you had a coffee this morning and he didn't take it very well at all um and he thought he then said to me he goes look they were all taking notes they were so you know they're really learning a lot and I talked to the students and they were like he made so many mistakes and they were noting everything that he was saying that was just factually not true um and that sense of power and the language that students gain in the, that kind of transformative education is just, I mean, Shivani's now 
graduating and is going to do fabulous things. So do you think there is a disconnect between the emerging generations and the current generations that are leading the world? Do you think that there's two different conversations going on? Yeah. Hopefully. In terms of age? In terms like of policy and the way that culturally we view things. Um, basically, what I'm getting at, I think that you guys are on the ball. You know, you, you totally, you are the next leaders. Um, undoubtedly, the current crop of leaders aren't necessarily up to speed as what these are. Do you agree with that? No, I would, I would or agree. Not. But I would also like the average age of a student in my class is 34. Yes. So it's not that I am teaching young 18-year-olds and they're like. Because, Daniel, you had some pretty liberal ideas around drug use and drug policy when you came in. But I have got 50-year-old Nigerian men who have changed their ideas yes. about drug policy as well. So it's not, just, it's not just young people. And that's where, I guess, from an educator perspective, I think we as a society need to talk about what are we doing in educational spaces around these kinds of topics and are we providing lecturers like myself with the resources to be able to facilitate slow, critical, reflexive conversations that allow for this kind of transformative thinking? Now, the conspiracy theorist in my, in my brain says that they don't want us to have students who are actually critically thinking, engaged citizens. And, well, no, and I, uh, but I, you know, these... I love drug policy, but I think that this is speak, it's a lens by which we should be thinking about society and what kind of society do we want to have. And Bruce Alexander's work is fantastic because he takes that cage experiment and then talks about a neoliberal society that drives through individualism and individualizing social problems. Um, would you, so, would you yeah. disagree, Anne? And what I just said there, that we're not so much looking at generational change? I think, I mean, when you first asked the question, I was thinking, oh, well, no, but I understood what you meant. And, you know, I think we sort of seen, it, say, the current generation of leaders, what they say when, before they're in office and then what they then say when they get into office. So David Cameron, before he became prime minister, said drugs should be decriminalized. You know, he was very clear about that. To me. Right. There you go. So there's a witness, a real witness. You know, it wasn't just hearsay. Yeah, I used to edit this thing called the user's voice. So I used to get drug users to speak in a positive way about their lives. And then we, I was very lucky to be able to access people like Cameron and lots of great people. Anyway, and, you know, I got very excited being as naive as I am. I don't know where we get this um, idea of drug users being really, you know, bad and not... You know, what's the opposite of naive? Uh, experience, cynical. cynical, blah, blah, people. You know, I really believed in him. You know, it didn't occur to me that he was a politician. This was a long time ago. But anyway, yeah. So I was ecstatic, you know, because... I was thinking in those days. I mean, you know, I was pretty ignorant, really. I think when I look back, I really didn't understand the whole political system at all. But, yeah, it was... Uh, it gave me a great deal of hope. And when I got back to Drugscope, which was a leading drug project in this country, they were like, Andrea, just calm down, because you are going to be so disappointed, probably, at some point down the road. You know, this is just one politician who's on the way up and at the moment this is a popular idea that he ascribes to but anyway sorry i interrupted you no 
that's great to have to have the you know to have real uh, material to that story. But yeah, so he did say he, that drugs should be decriminalised, um, that UK drug policy was failing, and then he became prime minister and almost denied that he'd ever said that. And of course, you know, when even confronted with you know increasing overdose deaths in this in this country, still maintained that UK drug policy was working just fine. So, um, you know, we've seen that, I think, the world over. But then you have someone like Justin Trudeau, who, you know, campaigned on a platform of, of you know, moving towards regulation of cannabis in Canada. They're sticking to their guns on that. It's, you know, it's problematic in terms of some of the issues that Steve already raised around the commercial nature of the market. And I don't know, Canada's still struggling with, I think, getting that part right. Also, you know, they're facing a huge heroin overdose epidemic related to fentanyl, um, adulterated heroin with fentanyl in British Columbia. You know, um, people are dying at an alarming rate and, and the government has been very slow to, to really try to address what's happening in British Columbia. And then when being confronted with the questions around what's happening with the, with the fentanyl overdoses, they're basically, they have said that they've already stuck their necks out on cannabis, so therefore it's very difficult for them to move on other substances right now. Um, and, it's, and that's terrible, you know. So, but at least I do think that, um, you know, Mr. Trudeau has his heart in the right place, and he's young, and I think he's one of the first leaders who's really campaigned on that platform and got to that and, you know, faced a lot of challenges and is still moving ahead with, with, with at least the cannabis regulation. And then you have the other thing with the leaders where... While they're in office, they feel unable to talk about reform, even though it's glaring them in the face. And then they leave office, and you only need to look at the Global Commission on Drug Policy, who are, by, you know, an awesome, amazing, inspirational group of people. But, you know, I don't think any of them, while they held these high political offices, came out in favour of drug policy reform. And the minute they left, then they felt able to, to support it. So I think the kind of thing that, that, you know, Jen is talking about, that, you know, you really have to, yeah, create the conditions whereby the public continues to question, continues to challenge, becomes more open-minded, and hopefully there will be a generational shift. I, I'd like to think that there will be. And that ultimately will give politicians exposure to, to do the right thing, you know, give them cover to, to say what they believe and know to be right without the fear of not being re-elected, you know, which I think is, is the main fear. I've kind of lost the microphone along the way. I think we're... Oh, we've got one there, one there. I think you've been wanting to make a point, haven't you? Ooh, well, it's yeah. a bit difficult Go on, be, after I Be brave. Um, well, I'm one of Jennifer's students, or was one of Jennifer's students for the last three years, and um, uh, I'm the one of the more mature ones. And for me, one of the sort of really interesting points for me are is that I'm German. I grew up in Germany, close to the Dutch border, and I never had a problem drug-related. We just crossed the border and then you drove home again. So it really was never an issue, you know. And so therefore, I never really thought about it until I came to the UK. And this is an island, and it's very difficult. And all of a sudden, it's like everybody's like, whoa, this is really strict here, you know, this is what's going on. And then I went to UEL, and then I came across Karl Hart, Bruce Alexander, Uldi, 
incarcerations in America for 500 to 1 and so on. And I just thought, this is really wrong. And I have children that are 15 and 17, and they came to see Carl. We read the book. They need to know. They need to know how to how to address it, how to how to deal with it, and what to change. And that is my absolute, you know, that was my driven point for this course, and I, I loved it. It's great, yeah. I'm going to grab a word with my chairman, Neil, over here, because, I mean, I think we're both believers in 26th June and what support and no punish is, aren't we? Because it's just such a pure message. And, and Neil, if you don't know Neil, a former undercover cop, been on the front lines of the war on drugs, I mean, you've seen firsthand the need to support no punish, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it is a wonderful movement, uh, and I hope it continues to grow every year. I mean... And I know it's taken off in other countries more, but there's there's so many stories of people who use drugs who who need support here. And what one comes to mind is uh, a young lady I met in Northampton, and she was a, a, a very problematic heroin user. And um, she said to me, "Yeah, I can do my rattle. I can I can come off heroin, but I choose not to because if because if I take if I come off it, I remember the abuse I suffered as a as a child." So for her, it was a pragmatic decision to stay on heroin, to stay alive, because otherwise she could try and commit suicide. And, um, and, and it struck me an, another day, because I, I was to sort of getting people, to manipulating people to introduce me to gangsters and, and basically try and buy as much, as large weights of heroin as I could. But you, you can't, when you're working undercover, you can't just be the person who turns up with loads of money. So I, um, so... Sometimes you had to play rattling, you know, a day without any money just for some credibility. Anyway, I met up with this uh, particular girl, um, called her Uma. And she saw I was rattling. She, she said, oh, mate, you, you're really hanging out, and gave me this £5 note. And I, I says, but you, you need it. She says, oh, no, it's fine. I've just, I've, I'm all right. I've got about four hours before I start rattling. So... I'll, I should be able to make up another tenner in that time, but you need it now. You need that five pounds now. And, and that's always stuck with me as someone who's living in such a desperate situation that when, when, when someone is, is really struggling that much, they can still have empathy for other people in the same, same kind of situation. And actually, people who are, have problematic heroin use are some of the kindest, most empathetic people I've, I've met anywhere. And so I, I, I think that that, is, is for me an inspiration um, for the slogan support don't punish because you know how the humanity and empathy can come from all sorts of difficult situations as you said Anne it must be inspiring when you do get to see what these great stories are out there you know communities coming together under their own steam doing something that's so so prominent and and what is being planned for this this year's 26th of june support no punish yes um that's an important question because you all need to get involved in some way or other and become part of this amazing um global movement global show of force global community and and yeah i'm really i'm quite overwhelmed right now, especially listening to what Neil just said. But um, I'm also excited because, you know, we, 
yeah, every year we kind of think, is there another year in this campaign? You know, are we going to keep it going? You know, but the expectation's been created there now. And, you know, when you ask me if, you know, it's inspiring, I mean, it's, it's so much bigger than, than just, you know, us anymore, the people who kind of kicked it off. It's, you know, you guys own it. It's, it's not really about us. We just provide some tools, you know. And then, like, look at Steve's shirt. You know, this is the other thing. People have reimagined the logo, you know. That's the, the joy of it, um, the creativity of it. Yeah, it's uh, the Danish street lawyers, no? Yeah, so it's amazing. So, yeah, you all need to get involved, and there are many ways to do so. The 26th of June, Global Day of Action, and I'm going to hand over to Jen in a minute because I know that Jen and her students are planning an action in London. Um, there are, you know, I mean, there are actions all around the world. You can have your own action in your own city. If you're not based in London, you can look on the Support Don't Punish website for inspiration. You know, this year, some of the events that we already ha know are happening is um, in Northern Ireland, there's going to be a die-in outside the city hall. Um, in Spain, they're going to go around the city dressing statues in oversized um, Support Don't Punish t-shirts. Um, also this year, we're having a competition for the best non-permanent street art um, and the winners will get $500 so there you go just putting it out there um, and we, so we've been gearing up for, for, for the 26th of June for a number of, of months if you go to the Support Don't Punish website you can access all the materials there we've you know, um, got, got a load of guides on, on different actions that you can take and yeah, and you can also contact the team for more information. You can also just engage via social media. So on the 26th of June itself, change your profile pic on Facebook to the campaign logo, retweet, hashtag support don't punish. I think in 2014, we managed to get hashtag support don't punish trending on Twitter. And that was pretty awesome. So that would be great to have something happen like that again. And, and definitely, if you haven't done it already, you know, get involved in the photo project and, and that's a very sort of concrete way to add, you know, your face, your image, your voice to, to the global movement. Yeah, so. So what is it you got planned, Jennifer? There. Um, <clears throat> because we are University of East London, we are going to take over the Broadway in Stratford on the 26th of June, and the students are planning to build a rat park installation. Um, and we're going to do some outreach on the street in terms of talking to people about what is drug use, what is a drug user, what are the harms associated. They're gonna, we're going to do a... Um, uh, you probably are all aware of the uh, crack and powder cocaine disparity that existed within the United States, um, 100 to 1, which resulted in mass incarceration. So we're doing an installation to show that disparity. We're doing um, a bunch of uh, interactive activities with people on the street. Uh, we're going to bring our harm reduction home that we put into the exhibition last year, which is a home we created out of 952 uh, syringes to represent each person who died from a heroin or opiate overdose in the previous year. So it's a home made of syringes. Um, so we've got a whole bunch of different activities if you want to get involved. My email is randezi at gmail.com. Um, randezi at gmail.com. And uh, the students will all be there. So it would be great if you could come and join us. And all of these. Oh, and there's also music. 
and uh, spoken word poetry um, performances throughout. So that's it. Um, hopefully not, but in London you're always like well, three feet away from one, right? I can't, I can't, I, I grew up on a farm, I'm terrified of rats, so no. All of these links, if you go to acast.com slash stop and search, they'll all be scrolling, you'll all see them on the episode. Um, have we got time for just a couple more comments from the audience? We, got, we have, we got one down here, brilliant. What's your name, by the way? Hi, everybody. My name's Gillian. I'm actually from Vancouver, Canada. And um, so I'm speaking in solidarity for you amazing people tonight and all the uh, ways that you are working to make change happen and how open you've been to changing your minds. And that's what it takes. And a couple of things about Canada and actually Vancouver. Uh, Dr. Bruce Alexander is from Vancouver. And um, he's a hero, of course. Uh, and so I really want to shout out about him and just thank you for the acknowledgement. And I will tell him, Ray, maybe he knows already how far his work has come. Um, and then there's another doctor called Dr. Gabor Maté. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so um, just when you remember, because when you're talking about that 80-20, 80% of people don't have a problem, that the 20% he's very um, clearly identified are people with unresolved trauma. And that's just, there's no arguing with that. It's not a mystery. It's simply that. And that's where you should be putting your, not you, but when you're talking to people, that's where the resources need to be going, is to help people with their unresolved trauma. End of story. So I just really want to, oh, and one other thing. Our dreary politicians, slightly brighter with Trudeau, but he's in a, you know, difficulties with making too many promises he can't really keep. However, uh, just the day we left, I'm here on holiday uh, visiting family, um, the health minister, the federal health minister, uh, was on record actually on a CBC radio interview saying that we should be giving heroin to people uh, with heroin addiction problems. <laughs> what an interesting idea. <laughs> However, um, how novel is that? But in response to this brutal um, fentanyl overdose crisis that we're, we're experiencing in Canada. So, so she actually said it publicly, which is a really big move forward. Um, we're also in the place where there was the first supervised injection site ever opened in North America. Uh, we have a second one, about to open a third one. It's, it's just, um, I'm telling you this because anything's possible, really anything's possible, and it's all because of people like you. Thank you for your work. We, uh, the students read a chapter from Gabor Mate's book, um, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and um, one of them has the acronym COAL, and when we're looking at someone and we might think that their life is really chaotic or problematic, we should look at them with curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love. And it is one of the most powerful things that the students read, and, they, they, and his TED Talk is fantastic. So... Um, Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Vancouver is, is always a, an example. Right, so I think we're going to wrap up now. Andrea, you might as well have one more last say. Actually, I wanted to tell the story, which is really moving, and that, I don't know why it's stuck in my mind, but um, I used to do legal needle exchange whenever I visited um, friends in New York City, and um, one day, uh, so it was when it was illegal. Oh, I just said that, didn't I? Sorry, I am ill. Just... And... Um, 
a guy came to get some works and um, just at that moment, uh, some cops came over to the site where we were distributing the... Well, we were doing bleach, ostensibly. On top was bleach, under the, uh, under the counter were the works. And um, I'm not telling this story very well, I don't think, but the point is that um, they, the cops started uh, harassing the... Uh, bleach distributors and said, well, you can give out bleach, but if I see one clean needle, you're all going to jail. And the injection drug, the guy, the dope fiend who'd come along to get his um, kit was just, I mean, he was just, he said, you can go to jail for this? And we were, you know, because he couldn't believe that people were willing to put their lives, you know, their liberty on the line for somebody like him. So, I don't know, it's just a story that... Um, and then I was sent off. Andrea, go and tell him about drug users' rights. Go, go, go cafe. You know, it was really um, one of those solidarity moments of... Uh, well, that has kept me alive. I mean, seriously, that's the only way to, to tell this. You know, anyway, I'm going to shut up now. Thank you. And Jennifer, if you, I mean, you've been, I think it's fair to say, the star of the show tonight. If you want to wrap up in some sort of way, do a song, do a dance, go for it. We have somebody else in the audience who would be better at doing a song, but I'm not going to mention Simone. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure, go for it. Bring the mic around for you. Hi, everyone. Um, I was just listening to this, so a massive thank you to you guys. And uh, Sorry, I'm Mike. How are you doing? Hi, hey, cool. Hey, guys. How's it going? Yeah, you rock, by the way. Yes, I do. Spuds. Thank you. Um, no, you, you mentioned things about standing up and saying things and, you know, just getting involved and making a change. So uh, I haven't really thought of anything much to say except for that what I've concluded from hearing you guys, which is... Uh, well, I mean, first of all, you mentioned something about the marginalisation of certain stereotypes. See, I can't even spell that. That was, that was fantastic. And it got me thinking about people who are brought up in certain environments and they don't have the certain things that, uh, that we get access to. And what I mean is, if you, look, if you think about these drug traffickers and if, if you think about these drug dealers, um, if you remove the fact that they're criminals, they're hustlers, right? I mean, they work hard. You find me one employee that wants to risk their job, their freedom and their lives for for their work, and there's, there's very, very few people that do that. And you mentioned the thing about the rat in the cage, you know, that's all they have. You know, I mean, if, if Tyrone gets his council flat door kicked in and they found three kilos of coke under his bed, it's ambitious, right? You know, he, he's thinking, you know, he doesn't have bicycles because his flat's not big enough, and he goes to prison. Can he get a loan after that? No, he can't, so what does he do? He goes back to what he did well, which was getting his coke again, or whatever. And I mean, I saw it over there, there's Alan Sugar over there, hustler. Okay, he took risks, and yeah, yeah, exactly. And he will take less risk. Does he risk his life for anything? No, he sits on TV and swears at people now. Okay, so I think that depending on the certain environment that they're brought in, it, it, it can really, really, really change everything. And if you want to talk about this environment, what's about to change if you do legalize drugs? You were mentioning business and um, uh, and industry is that you're going to get these poor countries, let's assume that it's legal like you said it was, you're going to get these poor countries that turn, into, that turn from third world countries to first world countries overnight. And there's certain people in control that don't want that. Of course not. They're in debt and they rely on that debt to be paid back by a certain amount. So you've got Mexico all of a sudden paying all their debt back. Anyway, this is probably beyond the scope of this conversation. But, um, 
No, it, it, it really is. It really is. But it shows that once this is legal, legalised, and once we are moving in the same way that, uh, that you mentioned, that absolutely everything is going to change, and you need to be prepared for that. Um, on another note, I do have a suitcase that needs bringing back from Tijuana. And if... Uh, <laughs> if um, no, anyway, that was it. Thanks very much. I think we'll have Alan Sugar on the, as the next podcast guest. I think. <laughs> How do we top that? I, oh, Jennifer, try and top that now. Yeah. Go on. No, I, yeah. no, no, no. So, I, I just wanted to... This is the teacher in me, but um, there is a, there's an anthropologist, and his name is Philippe Bourgeois, and he has written a lot about um, drug use and drug users, and he's worked with, um, in California... For 10 years, he did a photography and ethnographic project with um, heroin and injecting users that live on the street that are homeless. And he also worked in Harlem in the 1980s. And, um, and he has a chapter that I have the students read, and it's called In Search of Horatio Alger. And Horatio Alger is the story of the American dream. And that when you actually look at people's lives, Every one of us is searching for a way to make meaning in our lives. And that meaning is limited or facilitated through the structures in our society, which is political, economic issues and policies. And so I think anthropology is really powerful because through slow and participative and engaged conversations with people, we can start to understand the meaning that people are trying to make and at the same time attest to the structures that limit their capacity to actually engage in any type of change or movement. And um, so I just think that that's a really powerful way to think about the world, and that's what I've tried to do in working with my students. So I think that people can change, and I think that it is moving in a direction, but it's glacial, and it needs to be, actually, because yeah. people need time. Um, so there. And Anne, final words to you. Support Don't Punish is on the 26th of June. How can people get involved? What can they do? What, to, what can they look out for? Yes. Um, well, like I said, there's a, you know, there's a massive social media presence on that day. And I encourage you, if you can't organise an action or can't get involved in this amazing action that's going to be happening in Stratford, like, you need to get down there. It sounds... <laughs> Awesome. Um, I'm so excited because I didn't, actually didn't know the details. But obviously, yeah, in London, that, that will be happening and there will be actions, I guess, in other cities around the UK. But you can track what's happening via our um, supportdontpunish.org website. And yeah, get involved, get in touch, you know, become part of this community. We, uh, yeah, we need more... Um, we need, yeah, more people, more activists, and you know, and and I'm so inspired by Jen and her work, and the students, and what you've been saying, and you know, the fact that I know that Jen has been saying to you all that you need to go out and convince ten more people, and that's how this thing eventually will change and grow, and you know, that's that's really exciting. And thank you so much um, for this amazing evening. It's been awesome, really. Thank you. What do you think, guys? You can do something for support, don't punish. You're going to get along to the the Broadway with UEL guys. Make sure that you get involved. I'm going to be there. I'm definitely going to um, check out their big rap party. It sounds immense. Um, a few thank yous. Um, obviously, thank you to everybody who took part in that specific episode because, yeah, again, it was just a true sense of 
purpose. This is what we're doing. This is why we need to end the war on drugs. So please help out. There's lots of ways you can get involved. All links will be on this scrolling Acast links. Again, acast.com slash stop and search. Anything you need to know, it'll all be there. You can find out what IDPC are doing, find out what everybody's involved in Leap's doing. Um, by all means, follow everybody you can on Twitter and, and keep involved. But also a few thank yous. I have to always thank my name is Ad. Uh, .co.uk for the absolutely amazing artwork you do for us uh, generally within Leap thank you so much Ad so much appreciated this podcast would not happen without producer Nicky he is the unsung hero of, of Stop and Search so thanks so much Nicky um, and just generally thank you so much to everybody that's involved in making this happen everybody that turns up for the audience um, make sure you keep a lookout for what our next events are going to be um, We've got so much coming up. Um, I'm not going to say what because I like to keep this time neutral. So make sure you go to the UKLeap.org website and you can keep on the top of our next events. Um, also, thank you to Johnny Borrell as ever for our lovely theme music. Um, I think that's it. Um, so just do make sure that you get involved a bit more. Uh, see what you can do. We can all do a bit more. So thanks so much again for guys for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay Behind your barricades Where true love seldom stray Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.